This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. What's going on, listeners? Thanks for tuning in to this very special episode of the Rocks to Roots podcast, where we are recording live from the Farm and Food Symposium here in Spokane, Washington, with a live audience. Can I hear it from the audience? We have a great panel discussion to share with you all today, and we are gonna be speaking about nutrient density in food and why we should care. We are joined by a great panel of special guests. We have Scott Gale, the biofarming manager for the Spokane Conservation District. We have Dr. David Montgomery from the University of Washington. We have Anne Beakley with Dig to Grow. And we also have David Knaus with Apical Labs. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for presenting at the conference and thank you for being on the podcast today. So for the listeners who are not in attendance of the conference, I'd love to give each of you a chance to please just introduce yourself real quickly and talk about your connection to food, health, and agriculture. Wow, that's a big question. That's a hard question to keep it short, but I'm gonna try desperately to keep it short. So Anne here, and um, really digging it at the conference today. Uh, David and I were able to talk about um, our latest book, What Your Food Ate. And I have to say that I was really pleased after our talk was done, just because it was done, but then later listening to a rancher, and I just told him this, I said, oh my gosh, 10 years ago, a rancher standing in front of a room talking about phytochemicals, oh, that is my jam. So really happy to be here. And I'm the other half of this, uh, Dave here, and I'm a geologist by training and background. So I got into thinking about farming and nutrient density and food kind of backwards style, uh, which is, I guess, the way I do a lot of things. But it's uh, it was by looking at the destruction of land and the degradation of soil, and the, de- the loss of fertility and the loss of nutrient density in food. And then starting to wrestle with the questions of how can we restore soil health, restore soil fertility, restore the nutrient density of foods. And Ann and I have been on a journey of listening to farmers, reading, you know, untold numbers of horribly boring scientific papers to try and synthesize what really is the connection between soil health and human health. So we're happy to be here talking with like-minded folks. Thank you. Um, Scott Gale, biofarming manager, Spokane Conservation District. Um, I, I think the genesis of nutrient density for me was a couple years ago, we had a biofarming meeting. It was one of our historic two days little marathon session and the speaker, we went around the table and everybody kind of gave their past and their health and their history and these things. And and we had never thought about this until the speaker goes, do you realize that 25% of you currently have a disease that did not exist 75 to 100 years ago and we all kind of look at each other like what the hell are you talking about and and that was a big a big zinger for me um you are what you eat eight i've been saying for quite a while and it's really important to um, hone down on that and and so we're all in trying to grow nutrient-dense food that heals people thanks scott so my name is David Knaus. I'm the president and founder of Apical Crop Science and Lab. We are a regenerative agronomy service based out of Canby, Oregon. I personally have been involved in building organic and regenerative food systems for about 20 years. I started out as a farmer and eventually got recruited to do a lot of education programs for about 10 years. And when I had sufficiently trained a number of farmers and students in uh, organic farming methods, I launched apical crop science to uh, breach the wider audience and regenerative 
uh, acreage that exists that really needs to transition into regenerative agriculture practices. So, um, like I said, we're a regenerative agriculture consulting service based out of Canby, Oregon, and we have a lab that specializes in plant sap analysis and soil analysis and water analysis. And we use all of that data to help growers refine their outcomes in organic and regenerative agriculture. All right, can we give another round of applause for our panelists today? Thank you. All right, so this is a live podcast. This is our first live podcast. We want it to be interactive. So I have prepared a few questions that will go ahead and get the discussion going. I wanna give each of you an opportunity to answer those questions. And then what we'd like to do is open it up to the audience for any questions that you might have for these panelists. Um, and panelists, if you could please just repeat those questions um, once they are asked from the audience, just so that we can make sure and get those in the recording. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in. So how do you define nutrient density? And I'll just let you guys popcorn and whichever one wants to take it. Uh, this is Dave Montgomery here. And I like to think of it nutrient density as the ratio of nutrition to calories. So if you, and so whatever thing you're looking at, whether it's a phytochemical, a vitamin or a mineral micronutrient, if you look at how much of that stuff you're getting per calorie of the food you're eating, that's a reasonable definition of nutrient density in, in my book. And this is Anne here. And what I would add to that is uh, I, I'd like us to think maybe a little more holistically about that, because um, as much as I agree with what the other half just said, um, we too often focus on single, single nutrients and elements and things like that. And so it, it, everything that Dave just said, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just not quite. It's not quite right. <laughs> here's the. Exciting. Here is the. Here is the. Now imagine writing a book together. <laughs> and so here's the other thing that I would like to see in in definitions around nutrient density. Um, Yes, we want high levels of things, but we want them in the right combinations. And we also don't want things like toxics and toxins in our food. So that, that sort of rounds out a couple of things that I think about when it comes to nutrient density. A couple years ago, I read a book called Eat Like the Animals. <clears throat> and it was a couple of Australians, I think they were Australians, might have been New Zealand. One of them was Australian researchers. And what they did was they just couldn't figure out how people are eating all these calories and they're really just getting fat and dying. And so what they did, they were etymologists by trade. And um, the interesting thing was they started studying through insects and then the, the food chain. What they found was we eat for protein, <clears throat> we eat for nutrients, we eat for nutrient density. And then what happened, they started, okay, well, that's understandable, but why, why in the modern food system then are we so unhealthy? And what we found in the modern food system was that we had a lot of calories that they were spiking with artificial flavorings, natural flavorings, um, things like that, that tricks our system into believing you're eating nutrient dense food, which is a bunch of hollow calories sprayed with a bunch of crap. And interestingly enough, our DNA to its deepest core knows what nutrient density is to its deepest core. And our job is to find that. And um, Tim Corning always said it the best, food that heals. That's the deal. And, and that's, what I, that's what I believe. Yeah, I would maybe be a little bit more um, questioning about the, the question because I don't really know what it is, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of us maybe are still struggling to um, define it in, in concrete terms and metrics and data points and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's a process that we can all uh, potentially be a part of, which I think is exciting. Um, but that said, when I think about nutrient density, I definitely want to echo um, some of the statements that were just previously made, um, specifically around uh, toxin intake, um, but also um, ratios. And what we see in our lab is when plants are healthy and the crops are successful and the, and the farmers are profitable, and all three of those are lining up, we're finding extreme differences in the mineral content that's in those plants 
uh, on a day-to-day basis from the plants that are susceptible to uh, pesticide usage, insects, disease, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's massive changes in the in the plant's physiology that are affected um, of every plant that we've studied that are affected by how that plant is accessing and intaking and processing the nutrients in the soil or that are being applied to it. And um, generally speaking, there's a lot of room for improvement in our agricultural practices that we've uncovered. Um, and we've seen that when growers start to embrace uh, techniques towards mineral density or um, embracing some of the mineral balancing protocols that that, and that, uh, that are popular in the organic and regenerative communities, um, that they then have to start to achieve those those ends, which are is really exciting. So now that we have a little bit better understanding of nutrient density, so why is it important and who should care? Everybody should care. Absolutely. (laughs) Everybody on earth and every species on earth, I would say, should care because, you know, you hear about this whatever mass extinction um, that's supposedly happening, et cetera, and, and you know, oh, maybe we might be a part of it or something. But when you look at some of the environmental problems that are out there, I mean, how many of them are connected to our agricultural practices? I would say a vast majority. So you can't separate yourself from the food that you intake. You can't separate yourself from the environment that you walk in. So I'd be happy to debate anybody on that point. I'm going to go back to Pottinger's cats. They did a fantastic study through post-World War II, and they fed cats processed food versus unprocessed food or versus whole food. And they generation after generation, the cat, the kittens got sicker that ate the processed food. The kittens who were the, fed the, the whole foods, they were just vigor. Um, we used vi- the word vigor on the Shat Schneider did, on the calves eating on the cover crops. But every generation, they got sicker and sicker. We passed that negative, um, those negative traits on to our offspring. And by the fourth generation of feeding these kittens or cats processed food, uh, highly processed food, they couldn't keep them alive. And so when you look at what's going on, we are a, a, a living Pottinger's cats experiment. Um, when COVID hit, the most amazing thing I found about when COVID hit, this just floored me, was that the lines at every fast food restaurant tripled. Uh, Mind numbing. I just can't even fathom this whole thing. So why should we care? Everybody should care. Who should care? Everybody should care. If you eat, you should care. If you have kids that eat, grandkids that eat, the whole shebang, you should care. Yeah, it's hard to elaborate further on that. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, But, you know, at the risk of elaborating on that, I guess I would argue that the... um, you know, whether we're eaters in terms of what's actually in our food, um, there's connections between the nutrient density of food and the potential to better manage chronic diseases, uh, which you know afflict many of us in the developed world today. Uh, in the developing world, uh, there's a lot of mineral micronutrient deficiency that could also be helpfully addressed in those regards. And you know, for too long, I think we have not considered agricultural policy as health policy. So it's not just eaters, it's policymakers. Uh, we've heard a lot today from farmers talking about how regenerative practices can be actually more profitable when they're adopted on farms. So, you know, and right there we've got, you know, agencies and government uh, society at large is represented through our governments. We have farmers, the people who are growing our food. We have eaters that covers darn near everybody, just subdivides us a little bit. Yeah, I think the other thing about this whole question of nutrient density, who should think about it and and who should care, also has to do with the fact that I think in in some ways, and maybe why we don't totally have a great definition for it, is that the field of nutrition um, is sometimes presented as, um, we know everything that there is to know, and so that's that. We just need to, you know, quote, follow, follow the rules. But in fact, um, there's sort of this dark matter of nutrition idea as well. And what I mean by that is earlier in the talk today, you know, I talked about microbial metabolites and the transformations that occur in the uh, rumen of, of our ruminant animals and the same kinds of transformations, but with different 
different fodder, so to speak, coming in, in our own bodies. And so these are, are they nutrients if they don't provide us energy, but they kill off a cancer cell? I mean, I don't care what you want to call them. I don't want any cancer cells in my body. And so when we, so there's this, this, this idea of the dark matter of nutrition, it's different for every one of us because we're all different, right? Our G, the genome of every single one of us is different between both, we had different parents and we have a different microbiome. And so there's this, this whole area of nutrition, okay, that's in air quotes right now, and, and what it really means and how we make sure that we continue, I think, exploring this idea of nutrients and nutrient density and to know that that's not just in a, a finished food product, whether it's ultra processed food or a whole food. It starts to happen out there in the field where the crops are grown or where the animals are raised. And if you ever go to any sort of gathering of wine people, what has struck me when I've done this, I don't mean wine, I mean wine drinkers, but I mean at a wine conference. These are growers and these are winemakers. And, and always there will be that contingent that says, I'm not really making the wine. That is happening, the vine is doing that out in my vineyard. I'm just facilitating what nature has already sort of put in place. And then there is the winemaker that says, give me those grapes, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna bring it in and I'm gonna be the one making the wine. And so there's two very different philosophies there, I think, about how you how you think about food and beverage um, in, food and beverages in the human diet and how do we ensure to the extent that our understanding allows us to suffuse those foods and beverages with the entirety of everything that the human body needs to heal itself and to you know, continue to be a normal human being in what can sometimes be a sort of uh, frustrating modern world. And then the, um, back to your economic side. So you can pay for good food or you can pay for pills. Um, in the 60s, the uh, US household spent 16% of their income on food and 8% of their money on healthcare. And I think it was a 2015 stat. In 2015, we spent 16% of our income on healthcare and 8% of our income on food. All right, so you, you're gonna pay for it. As, as, an, as a country, we're gonna pay for it, but do you wanna be swallowing good food or do you wanna swallow a bucket of pills every day? You really have to make that decision. So we are here at the Farm and Food Symposium and we have many of producers and farmers in the room right now. So what can farmers do to ensure that they are growing quality food? Well, I think the first thing is to consider what you're doing with mother nature um, and as a partnership, um, I think that's the first step really for, for farmers and growers to really have success in regenerative ag. Um, the, uh, our the keynote speaker today, Rick Clark, really talked about that, which I, I can not echo that statement more, uh, louder. Um, if, you, if you work with Mother Nature, she will help you to be successful in the in the moral uh, in the moral world as well as in in practice and so that would be the first thing uh second thing yeah definitely need some analytics um high quality crop inputs if needed um really good strong education and foundation it does take a lot of expertise uh, to transition farms from their current state to one that's regenerative or or regenerative organic so those are definitely key pieces, um, but more than that, it takes community support, and community support is is crucial um, to deploying regenerative agriculture systems and in so many different ways. Uh, years ago, when some of the local food uh, movement was really just starting to get underway, you know, 20 years ago ish, um, you could really see once the community started to get engaged, how much more vibrant. Uh, the farmers markets became and the the CSA um, you know economy became and so on it was just it was just remarkable once there was a little bit of uh, enthusiasm from the you know the general public and next thing you know all of a sudden you know organic farming was we became popular whereas before it was just a fringe thing so um, 
anyway, those are a few things, but yeah, definitely technical, uh, technical knowledge is, is pretty key and, and it takes science and, and technology ultimately to really get you there. But, um, uh, like I said, the, the main key point is working with mother nature. So following up with that, what are some of the challenges or some of the obstacles that hinder growers ability to grow good food? The entire system is set up to grow it the way it is grown today, from the rail station to the chem station to the to the machineries, it, whatever. I mean, you know, I said to Dan Kittredge, um, owns and runs the Bionutrient Institute last year when he was coming out with his when with his beef nutrient density study, and I said so. I, I thought I was crazy taking on the, the grain industry. You're taking on the beef industry, like trillions of dollars. Talk about poking the bear. Um, it's just, the system is set up that way, period. But it's at the same time, what happened the first time one of you put 1152 or 10, 1137 or FOSS acid through a pump or a truck or a whatever? Crap went everywhere. And then we figure it out and we pivot and we go. So we have to redesign a fair amount of education. We have to redesign a fair amount of systems. And then quite honestly, back to my example of the 320 acre farm that was highly profitable through the 60s and 70s. And um, we won't talk about the 80s, but anyway, the, uh, um, that getting back to some version of that model, you know, that's why we talk about, um, um, Vicki said it best this morning, seed to shelf. Really, it's just talking. It's not just like, oh, hey, this is my little part. I'm gonna drop it off at this at this place, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk that product. I'm gonna grow something I'm proud of and I'm gonna walk it through the entire system. All right, at this time, I'd like to open it up to our live audience. Do we have any questions in the audience for our panelists? So the question was, how does nutrient density relate lead to farm families, farmers, success? Yeah, so kind of following up on the point that I made at the outset about how crops that are being grown for nutritional content or with a little bit of consideration for that um, can be significantly more resilient. So what we see when those crops are becoming more resilient is not only do the farmers potentially earn more money, but they produce a healthier crop and a healthier product that then kind of circles back through the community. So what you've got is a, you know, and, and this is common in a lot of the regenerative agriculture systems that are deployed around the world where growers are seeing benefits of, you know, 10 to 25 up to 75 or 80% reduction in various crop inputs or um, uh, needed machinery or, or, or various things. And so, so you've got a huge opportunity for savings on one hand, but then also simultaneously you have on the other hand, a potential massive benefit to anybody that consumes the product as well as just the community at large. So, you know, how does how do you find a better equation than that? And where does the energy come from? And really the energy comes from mother nature. And so that's the, the missing piece that a lot of the other um, ag systems may have forgotten um, years ago. And like I said, if you work with mother nature, then you have this other piece and the benefits accrue because now she's brought in and she'll make you all part of um, the, you know, under her care, so to speak. So. I think there's there's a couple different ways to answer that question. Certainly what was just said is one way to frame it. I also think that when farmers can directly communicate and deal with consumers, um, a consumer will, and this is, you know, this is mostly going to happen in a farmer's market environment. That's what that allows for. Less so, you know, with walking into the produce section of a grocery store, because you really have no idea where that's where, you know, that apple came from. But if you are in a farmer's market environment or something like that, uh, a person walks away with whatever it is, you know, that you're selling, whether that's a, a plant food or an animal food. And you know that you're doing good when they come back the next week and say, uh, the peaches evaporated about 45 seconds after I put them on the kitchen counter, so I gotta buy a lot more this weekend. And that 
it's that kind of a thing. Consumers, I talked earlier about the connections between um, flavor and our body's ability to link up flavor with nutrient density. And so you don't, that's really not about um, farmers adding um, anything to a food product. That's about growing growing crops and orchard crops and what, what have you in living soil so that the plant is performing as best as it can and you're literally, you know, reaping the fruit of all of that. And then a consumer eats it and that's why they're gonna come back to you again and again and again. And of course, that's totally different if you're in the commodity markets because your stuff is just getting blended in um, with everything else. But like was just said, if your yields are better than and your bottom line is better than a neighbor's, then you know, you're making more money you know, on that kind of a model. So I think there's different ways to get there depending on um, what kind of crops you're growing. But I do think when you connect directly with consumers and they like your product, they're gonna come back. I mean, it, you don't need to do a lot of advertising because you're, what you grew or the animal that you raised is doing that for you. And to give the, uh, the question, kind of go back to some of the earlier answers as well and echo a bit of that, uh, the kind of practices that you would use to actually grow nutrient-dense food are the similar kind of practices that you do, you will, what's the practices you would you do use to uh, build soil health, increase soil organic matter, enhance the nutrient density of food. Those are also the kind of things that if you just put your mind to, how would I reduce my fertilizer use? How would I reduce my pesticide use? you'd end up at the same practices. So it's kind of a win-win-win uh, in that regard. Brilliant connection just made there. <laughs> <laughs> question over here? So the question was, there was, I talked earlier about um, olfactory neurons that are picking up on um, these flavors in, um, in nutrient-dense food. And the question was, is there also something going on between the vagus nerve and our gut microbiome? And the vagus nerve is a, is a large nerve that runs from the gut to the brain. And um, the gut is often called the second brain of the human body. You might, in some ways, consider it the first brain because it it's taking in all of this data and information in the human diet and its job is to sort of control, or at least, control's not so much the right word, but it's to guide our behavior in ways that um, will, you know, hopefully be good for us. So there's a lot of research in this area, and is, you know, it's thought that um, gut microbiota can, air quotes here, talk to our brain via the vagus nerve. So what this implies, and there's evidence, there's evidence for that. And what this implies then is you wanna have a bunch of well-fed gut microbiota because you want them, you want them to be reinforced, you want them to be sending information and communicating with your brain in ways where it fits in with your body wisdom. That is, you know, the natural inclination to reach for and desire these foods that are, that are, um, really keep our cells and tissues and organs running just normally. Like I said earlier, we don't need anything super, we just need normal. And so this is a, it's a whole new um, area in, in human health to be considering that, <laughs> yes, we have an onboard ecosystem, it's dynamic and it's living and it is communicating with your brain in ways that we don't fully understand, but you want to keep those communication channels um, open and you want to have a well-fed gut microbiome because to put it this way, the conversation with the brain is a whole lot better and a whole lot more complete. Um, really interesting statistics on mental illness. Also in the last, I think the, the spike over the last 30 to 40 years, um, it's now a, like a top five disease in the US. And, and it's, there's a direct correlation with what you eat. And everybody's like, oh, there's crazy people everywhere. Well, you're right, there is. And that number's growing just because of what we eat um, has such a large portion to play, like you said. So that's made the top five list now. 
Will a balanced SAP test equalize to normal mental health? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Very deep question, actually. So if you have a balanced leaf analysis and it leads you to believe that you're about to have a really good harvest, and then you do, and then that harvest continues to encourage you to have balanced nutrition in subsequent seasons, then I would maybe say, yeah. <laughs> Another question? The question was, um, what are the benefits of FMT? That's a fecal microbiota transplant. Or can you get those benefits just through your diet? And so I, I know that seems kind of weird that, that you're transplanting. Don't think about it like feces, 100%. Think about it. Just 95. <laughs> think about it as, as a source of microbiota. This is, this is somebody else's microbiota, and there's research in this area. And you obviously, you know, you screen for no pathogens, but there's been some, some really interesting and convincing research in this area where people who have not responded to pretty intense antibiotic treatments for gut pathogens, and they are on their last legs, they are on their deathbed because this pathogen has been eating up their digestive tract. And okay, well, it's time to try an FMT. So that happens, and you know, within eight to 12 hours, the person's perking up, they're doing better, and they leave the hospital, and they have their health, their gut health, um, res restored to an extent that, you know, FMT is now considered um, a, a treatment for some things. So the, the difference between an FMT and just changing your diet is that um, the microbiota that you're getting through a transplant, if you don't have any of those species or subspecies or types already in your digestive tract, um, they're not there, and so no matter how you change your diet, if they're not there, you're not feeding them, and they're not, they're not growing. You get a little booster, a little kickstart through this transplant, and you want to keep that going, man. And so this is where what we know about the human microbiome and the gut microbiota is that, you know, this is where we're really not all that different than a ruminant in some ways. These bacteria thrive on fiber and phytochemicals. And this is what they're transforming into other compounds, compounds that are pushing back on, you know, really bad pathogens like Clostridium difficile, C. diff for short. And, and so this is, if you're, if you're going to get a transplant, it's really worth keeping those guys around. And so I would really advocate that if that ha were to happen to anyone here, that you, you start feeding them. It's sort of like, so as a gardener, right? I like a lot of different plants. And if there's some really special one that somebody gives me or that I find somewhere, I'm gonna do everything I can to keep that plant alive. And that might be how you would wanna think about the microbiota that you get um, through a transplant. So yeah, you can't, you sort of have to build it and then grow it and keep it going. But if you can't build it in the first place, doesn't, matter but whatever microbiota you do have that isn't that okay this is not permission to go and eat twinkies okay just because you haven't had a fmt all right you got a lot of good gut microbiota everybody in here does it's just a matter of feeding them their preferred diet one on which they thrive because when they thrive you thrive what was your your chart on your crohn's disease what was i mean do you remember how high that when that really oh, took off yeah. Yeah, so this was just a, a, a comparison uh, graphs between um, infectious diseases and chronic diseases. And when did the Crohn's, uh, Crohn's disease really take off? And it was probably in the, in the 80s, somewhere around there. 
And Crohn's okay, and this is also to say, there is no single bullet cure for anything out there. Everything is multifactorial, just like it is in farming, right? It's not, you don't just do one thing and everything changes. You gotta get things, you know, working together, so to speak, with the way that, I mean, this is how nature works. There's never just one thing that makes anything else happen. What could be the best single thing that a farmer could do in order to make sure that they are producing nutrient-dense crops? Generally speaking, include carbon as a consideration for fertilization. Um, plants need carbon and they cannot access it if the plant is imbalanced in the improper ratios. And so um, it, anyway, all the things that we've been talking about here in terms of nutrient density and phytohormone development and plants and so on, they, they need carbon and you can't even come close to getting there without it. So if you can start to manage carbon or manage carbon with your crop inputs or cycle organic matter, what ha however you get there, um, there's a lot of different techniques to doing so. Um, but that, that would be the one single biggest thing that I see would make the biggest difference. Yeah, I read uh, in writing these books, I read a lot of uh, the scientific literature that looked how, at how single practices would affect things like uh, soil carbon, for example. And almost across the board, the results are ambiguous in terms of single practices. What seems to work is a different system of farming, which is a combination of practices. So what I would argue in terms of a single thing to do on the ground, it's a single thing to think about. It's the philosophy of farming. It's basically prioritizing building soil health, which may lead you to different practices being the number one on the list in different contexts. So it's not a terribly satisfying answer, but I think it's actually a pretty realistic one. Um, I have one. So everybody who came to this conference was given one book. And in that one book is your one thing to do. So if you read What's Your Food Ate by David and Ann, you'll know exactly what to do. Okay, and contrary to my earlier thing about multifactorial um, considerations, I, I do, you know, there's the black and white thinking and it's like, oh yeah, one factor, what is it? Okay, let's go there because that's like easy, okay. So this is the one thing that I think, this isn't gonna change the world or your farm, but it's gonna be the beginning point that hopefully you can use as a launch pad to begin to incorporate other things. And that is to stop taking the egg beaters and the knives and the diskers and all of this physical disruption to the soil. What would happen right now if this roof were ripped off and a tornado blew through here. We'd be thrown up against the walls. Some of us would die. The rest of us would be injured so badly. We'd, you know, it would be bad. So knocking off on the physical disruption. These are the, some of the tiniest creatures on our planet. Single-celled organisms, tiny things, invisible. They can't handle a lot of getting banged and thrown around. So that the physical disruption and, and also minimizing that as well as the chemical disruption, that's just another kind of damage. So can I just jump in with the words that every spouse loves to hear? You're right, dear. <laughs> <laughs> we got that re on recording, so. <laughs> I did not pay him to say that. <laughs> How can we as consumers communicate to our um, communities about the importance of nutrient density and as well um, support the farmers um, in growing better food for us? Um, I, I do a, a fair amount of talks and I started over the last year, Ty and I started doing some talks outside of, of ag. And um, I, we started with the saying, you vote with your dollar. And, and that's what you have to pull it through, right? It, it doesn't matter how good a product we create as a farmer, if there isn't someone there to purchase it on the backside, purchase it, appreciate it. Um, and, and, and like Vicki said, educate the, the public. Once again, you're gonna spend that money on health or you're gonna spend it on food um, and they're so intertwined. So really as, as a consumer, you vote with your dollar. And what I'm really striving to see, um, Malabar Farms in the 40s and 50s used to have, it was the most successful well-known farm in the US. Um, the whole entire post-World War 
two soil water basin soil water conservation service now nrcs was going to be built on that model and then we had world after world war ii and then a little thing called fertilizer came along um but they used to do field days at uh, malabar farms in ohio Ten thousand people showed up to these field days and it, it just they would it would shut cities down it was just incredible about this and so when i talked to corny and Paige back there and when we talk about marketing and, and Joni and some of these other food companies, I say, that's great. You know, whatever your product is on the front of your package, that's awesome. And this is what it is. And this is how great. And it was, hopefully it was grown with farm smart commodities. Um, but on the back, I want a picture of uh, Dave Dobbins standing in his field next to the perennial hedgerow. Everyone write that down, perennial hedgerow. And, um, and with, the, with the address and the date, for the public for the field day. We need the public to engage. They need to come out and engage with that. They need to come see it. They need to stand right next to Dewald over there. They need to stand next to a quad track and a drill and see what it takes to pull these kind of things off. They need to go out to Mansfield, Washington, to Douglas's and, and see what it takes to, um, to make it work in his environment and go down to all these different places. But it's absolutely crucial that we reestablish that connection between um, uh, people and agriculture. So a friend of mine uh, uses a term once in a while called rockstar farmer. And I think that's a very uh, uh, appropriate um, term to bring into the conversation here um, because yeah, like Scott just said, super disconnected from the farmer to the consumer. Once you reestablish that connection, you realize just how difficult it is to do the job that the farmers have to do. And by supporting farmers, by appreciating them, by letting them know that you care, by voting with your dollar um, and, and elevating them into the status that they truly deserve in our society as the, as the, the, the heart and the backbone of really what, what we are as, as a country or, or beyond as a species, the, some of those, uh, that energy can kind of flow back to its rightful place, it seems. And um, so, yeah, I would say definitely appreciate farmers um, with a lot of different ways that you can and whatever way that it's going to be different on, on each individual level. All right. We have time for one more question from the audience. I, I would take a poll. I mean, how many, there's a lot of farmers in this room and I know quite a few of you. How many of you want to get bigger? How many of you can find the labor to get bigger? How many of you um, look at the, the issues we have in the supply chain with ag, with everything else? I, I, I would, Christ's sakes, I think everybody in here would cut their operation in half tomorrow if they could viably do it and have something called quality time instead of running razor thin margins. And, and when this goes back to David's point, people have no idea what it takes to pull off this farming gig, the hours, the time, the money, the capital at stake, really if you, do the analysis, we're a little bit crazy, but um, we have to we have to find the hole again. We had to break it down into this linear line in order to study all the parts, but the, you said it earlier, the sum of the parts don't equal, one plus one doesn't equal two, one plus one equals seven. So we have to get back to understanding that and appreciating and also understanding that we don't really know near as much as we think we do, and that's okay. It's really okay, so. One of the things I find most optimistic about regenerative farming is that the potential to make farms at lots of different scales more profitable than they are now, which could open up the niche again mm. of small profitable family farms. Um, you know, I have nothing against large farms. I've got plenty of colleagues around the world who argue we have to go to small farms. I think we can do regenerative small, we can do it large. We, we do it in different ways, but I'm more optimistic now that we can do it, that I've seen it work on both scales. Um, in terms of the specialist problem, I think that's a huge, speaking as an academic, I think that's a huge problem in the academy. Um, and you'll notice that I'm a geologist, I'm not an agronomist. Uh, you can, as a scientist, you can read the literature, synthesize stuff, but we're all trained to focus so narrowly these days on just our own little niche of things. We often lose sight of the big picture. And to me, in agriculture today, that, that big picture is how do we design resilient systems of agriculture for the appropriate scale of different farms. Um, and in, I think it was Growing a Revolution, I wrote about three different scales of farms that we could do that with in different ways. Um, but I don't think we'll ever run out of the need for specialists for special problems. 
but I think we actually need a lot more creative generalist thinking these days in terms of how to integrate what we already do know, but we don't put into practice. And I think that's not just a problem with agriculture. I think it's across the sciences. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I think we probably have all heard at some point or another when it comes to, well, how, what should the future of farming look like? And there's often criticism about um, those who, it, it, I think it's interpreted incorrectly as some of us, some of us are saying we need to look back in order to go forward. Because just like anything that we've done in our lives, earlier in our lives, I hope we've learned about mistakes and that we're doing it differently. So I'm not advocating going back to, you know, quote, old ways. I'm advocating, let's look back at what we know works and let's take that forward into the future of farming. And so with respect to this question about specialization and what farms and farming might look like, um, I'll say this. I'm really optimistic at this point with how far things have come in just the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, I mentioned earlier, it was you, in fact, the person who asked the question, you know, this, this person is um, in the cattle biz, and he's the one who said the word phytochemicals. I'm like, wow, that's amazing, okay? 10 to 15 years ago, right, farmers markets were not nearly um, as popular and sustained as they are these days. I mean, whoever heard of a farm to table event? Whoever heard of urban consumers really looking for ways to support farmers? That was not the norm in the 1980s or 90s or early aughts, right? But this, these are the kinds of trends that I think can help connect consumers with where their food comes from and with farmers. And the, the other thing I'll say that gives me a lot of hope is um, you guys and gals out there who farm and ranch are some of the smartest and most innovative people I have ever met. And it's when I go out to these places and you'll describe some challenge you face. It's the drought or it's this or it's this honorary animal or it's this complaining plant. And then you tell me what you did about that. And I'm just floored most of the time about the ingenuity that farming and ranching demands because it, it's not easy and you all know that and you all know that cookie cutter doesn't work. And so this brings me to um, we, what I like about regenerative agriculture and the philosophy, and I do think this is the one thing to, to, to really keep your eye on, is there is no cookie cutter out there. There is no one recipe. And it's because every piece of the landscape that is your, that your farm is on is a little bit different from your neighbors and it's a little bit different than somewhere else on your farm. And what I would urge you all to do, and maybe this goes back to the one question thing, is get out there and if you weren't observant before, start getting observant now. I mean, my training is in natural history. And so one of the things I learned how to do was stop, look at what is going on around you in the environment. Because as soon as you start doing that, you're building this database in your head about what's normal, what's wrong, where do you need to intervene, where do you need to back off. And this gives you the ability to solve problems. And regenerative agriculture is anything but cookie cutter and recipe driven other than these three basic principles that are all about taking care of the soil. So find your own recipe. It won't be, won't be cookie cutter everywhere on your farm, but you can certainly develop, I think, your own program and you can talk with other farmers and you can talk with consumers about this. I would love it if more farmers talked with me about their practices and what's working and not working because everybody can learn from that. There's a really interesting, I was reading something, um, I've been reading a book 
and I read it probably three times in the last six months because I keep coming back to it and coming back to it. <clears throat> Don's sitting right down here and he's part of a company called The Grain Shed. I spend a significant amount of my money and time in your business, thank you. And it's it's like my, it's like, it just, I feel good when I'm there. And I talk to Sean, the manager all the time, and I know the name of all the staff there. Um, but I feel good, my body knows, you'll feel your way to the truth. Um, I'm gonna go wrap back around to the question earlier of rebuilding your communities. And I'm gonna go back to the Joe Rogan, Will Harris, episode 1893, I do believe it was. Everybody should listen to this. Um, Will Harris has 3,200 acres. The average size of the farm in this room is probably well over 5,000 acres or somewhere in there. Um, he does 25 million in sales. He has the largest red meat processing facility privately owned in the US. He spent $7 million to do it. His payroll, he has 100, uh, 180 people on his payroll. I might be off a little bit there. His payroll is 100,000 bucks a week. Um, not to create more problems, but he rebuilt his community. He felt his way. He never said, he was the most conventional cattleman there was. He was the most conventional wheat farmer in our world. He was the most conventional guy you ever saw, but he just felt it, it just never was right. And we talk, we sit around our room all the time and we talk about this, what feels good. And we know what does and we know what doesn't. And if we'll let that go and drown out the noise in the background, all the fricking chatter from all the naysayers, number one rule, you can't be a naysayer and be in our group. Um, we're, we're gonna feel our way to the truth. And I think there's, there's just a lot of wisdom in, in that. So I, I really think we can pull that off. All right, and at this time we need to conclude our panel discussion, but of course we encourage that these conversations continue throughout the rest of the conference for the next um, day and a half. And to all of our listeners tuning in who are consumers, we encourage you to know your farmer, know your food. Let's give a round of applause to our panel, please. Rocks to Roots is now in its fifth season, and we are always looking for our episode suggestions. Um, you can go ahead and make those suggestions via our website, rockstoroots.org. And also, please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Rocks to Roots Podcast. So that's going to do it for today. Signing off. Looking forward to more conservation conversations soon. Thank you. Oh, good job. Yeah. Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov.